This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill. Read by Mary Reagan. Chapter 5, Part A. Institutional Religion and the Life of the Spirit. So far, in considering what psychology had to tell us about the conditions in which our spiritual life can develop, and the mental machinery it can use, we have been deliberately looking at men one by one. We have left on one side all those questions which relate to the corporate aspect of the spiritual life, and its expression in religious institutions, that is to say, in churches and cults. We have looked upon it as a personal growth and response, a personal reception of and self-orientation to reality. But we cannot get away from the fact that this regenerate life does most frequently appear in history associated with or creating for itself a special kind of institution. Although it is impossible to look upon it as the appearance of a favorable variation within the species, it is also just as possible to look upon it as the formation of a new herd or tribe, where the variation appears, and in its sense of newness, youth, and vigor, breaks away from the institution within which it has arisen, it generally becomes the nucleus about which a new group is formed. So that individualism and gregariousness are both represented in the full life of the spirit, and however personal its achievement may seem to us, it has also a definitely corporate and institutional aspect. I now propose to take up this side of the subject and try to suggest one or two lines of thought which may help us to discover the meaning and worth of such societies and institutions. For, after all, some explanation is needed of these often strange symbolic systems and often rigid mechanizations imposed on the free responses to eternal reality which we found to constitute the essence of religious experience. Anyone who has known even such direct communion with the Spirit as is possible to normal human nature must, if he thinks out the implications of his own experience, feel it to be inconsistent that this most universal of all acts should be associated by men with the most exclusive of all types of institution. It is only because we are so accustomed to this, taking churches for granted, even when we reject them, that we do not see how odd they really are. Curious it is that men do not set up exclusive and mutually hostile clubs full of rules and regulations to enjoy the light of the sun in particular times and fashions, but do persistently set up such exclusive clubs full of rules and regulations so to enjoy the free spirit of God. When we look into history, we see the life of the spirit, even from its crudest beginnings, closely associated with two movements. First, with the tendency to organize it in communities or churches, living under special sanctions and rules. Next, with the tendency of its greatest, most arresting personalities either to revolt from these organisms or to reform, rekindle them from within. So that the institutional life of religion persists through, or in spite of its own constant tendency to stiffen and lose fervor, and the successions, protests, or renewals which are occasioned by its greatest sons. Thus, our Lord protested against Jewish formalism, many Catholic mystics and afterwards the best of the Protestant reformers against Roman formalism, George Fox against one type of Protestant formalism, the Oxford movement against another. This constant antagonism of church and prophet, of institutional authority and individual vision, is not only true of Christianity, but of all great historical faiths. 
in the Middle Ages, Kabir and Nanak, and in our own times the leaders of the Brahmo Samaj break away from and denounce ceremonial Hinduism, again and again the great Sufis have led reforms within Islam. That which we are now concerned to discover is the necessity underlying this conflict, the extent in which the institution on one hand serves the spiritual life, and on the other cramps or opposes its free development. It is a truism that all such institutions tend to degenerate, to become mechanical, and to tyrannize. Are they, then, in spite of these adverse characters, to be looked on as essential, inevitable, or merely desirable expressions of the spiritual life in man, or can this spiritual life flourish in pure freedom? This question, often put in the crucial form, Did Christ Jesus intend to form a church? is well worth asking. Indeed, it is of great pressing importance to those who now have the spiritual reconstruction of society at heart. It means, in practice, can men best be saved, regenerated, one by one, by their direct responses to the action of the Spirit, or is the life of the Spirit best found and actualized through submission to tradition and contacts with other men, that is, in a group or church? And if, in a group or church, what should the character of this society be? But we shall make no real movement towards solving this problem unless we abandon both the standpoint of authority and that of naive religious individualism and consent to look at it as a part of the general problem of human society in the light of history, of psychology, and of ethics. I think we may say without exaggeration that the general modern judgment, not of course the clerical or orthodox judgment, is adverse to institutionalism, at least as it now exists. In spite of the enormous improvement which would certainly be visible, were we to compare the average ecclesiastical attitude and average church service in this country with those of a hundred years ago, the sense that religion involves submission to the rules and discipline of a closed society, that definite spiritual gains are attached to spiritual incorporation, that church-going, formal and corporate worship is a normal and necessary part of the routine of a good life, all this has certainly ceased to be general amongst us. If we include the whole population, and not the pious fraction in our view, this is true both of so-called Catholic and so-called Protestant countries. Professor Pratt has lately described 80% of the population of the United States as being unchurched, and all who worked among our soldiers at the front were struck by the paradox of the immense amount of natural religion existing among them, combined with almost total alienation from religious institutions. Those, too, who study and care for the spiritual life seem most often to conceive it in the terms of William James's well-known definition of religion as the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude, so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they may consider the divine. 119. Such a life of the spirit, and the majority of educated men would probably accept this description of it, seems little, if at all, conditioned by church membership. It speaks in secret to its father in secret, and private devotion and self-discipline seem to be all it needs. Yet, looking at history, we see that this conception, this completeness of emphasis on first-hand, solitary seeking, this one-by-one -one achievement of eternity, has not in fact proved truly fruitful in the past. Where it seems to be so fruitful, the solitude is illusory. Each great regenerator and revealer of reality, each God-intoxicated soul achieving transcendent, owes something to its predecessors and contemporaries.
120. All great spiritual achievement, like all great artistic achievement, however spontaneous it may seem to be, however much the fruit of a personal love and vision, is firmly rooted in the racial past. It fulfills rather than destroys, and unless its free movement towards novelty, fresh levels of pure experience, be thus balanced by the stability which is given us by our hoarded traditions and formed habit, it will degenerate into eccentricity and fail of its full effect. Although nothing but first-hand discovery of and response to spiritual values is in the end of any use to us, that discovery and that response are never quite such a single-handed affair as we like to suppose. Memory and environment, natural and cultural, play their part. And the next most natural and fruitful movement after such a personal discovery of abiding reality, such a transfiguration of life, is always back to our fellow men to learn more from them, to unite with them, to help them, anyhow to reaffirm our solidarity with them. The great men and women of the Spirit, then, either use their new power and joy to restore existing institutions to fuller vitality, as did the successive regenerators of the monastic life, such as St. Bernard and St. Teresa and many Sufi saints, or they form new groups, new organisms which they can animate, as did St. Paul, St. Francis, Kabir, Fox, Wesley, Booth. One and all, they feel that the full, robust life of the Spirit demands some incarnation, some place in history and social outlet, and also some fixed discipline and tradition. In fact, not only the history of the soul, but that of all full human achievement, as studied in great creative personalities, shows us that such achievement has always two sides. One, there is the solitary vision or revelation, and personal work in accordance with that vision the religious man's direct experience of God and his effort to correspond with it, the artist's lonely and intense apprehension of beauty and the hard translation of it, the poet's dream and its difficult expression in speech, the philosopher's intuition of reality hammered into thought. These are personal, immediate experiences, and no human soul will reach its full stature unless it can have the measure of freedom and withdrawal which they demand. But two, there are the social and historical contacts which are made by all these creative types with the past and with the present, all the big, rich, thick stream of human history and effort, giving them, however little they may recognize it, the very initial concepts with which they go to their special contact with reality and which color it, supporting them and demanding from them again their contribution to the racial treasury and to the present too. Thus the artist, as well as his solitary hours of contemplation and effort, ought to have his times alike of humble study of the past and intercourse with other living artists, and great and enduring art forms more often arise within a school than in complete independence of tradition. It seems, then, that the advocates of corporate and personal religion are both in a measure right, and that once again a middle path, avoiding the extremes of simplification, keeps nearest to the facts of life. We have no reason for supposing that these principles, which history shows us, have ceased to be operative, or that we can secure the best kind of spiritual progress for the race by breaking with the past and the institutions in which it is conserved. Institutions are in some sort needful if life's balance between stability and novelty, and our links with history and our fellow men are to be preserved. 
and if we are to achieve such a fullness both of the individual and of corporate life on highest levels as history and psychology recommend to us. The question of this institutional side of religion and what we should demand from it falls into two parts, which will best be treated separately. First, that which concerns the character and usefulness of the group organization or society, the church. Secondly, that which relates to its peculiar practices, the cult. We must inquire under each head what are their necessary characters, their essential gifts to the soul, and what their dangers and limitations. First, then, the church. What does a church really do for the God-desiring individual, the soul that wants to live a full, complete, and real life, which has felt in its solitude the presence and compulsion of eternal reality under one or other of the forms of religious experience? I think we can say that the church or institution gives to its loyal members 1. Group consciousness 2. Religious union, not only with its contemporaries, but with the race, that is, with history. This we may regard as an extension into the past, and so an enrichment of that group consciousness. 3. Discipline, and with discipline a sort of spiritual grit, which carries our fluctuating souls past and over the inevitably recurring periods of slackness, and corrects subjectivism. 4. It gives culture, handing on the discoveries of the saints. In so far as the freelance gets any of these four things, he gets them ultimately, though indirectly, from some institutional source. On the other hand, the institution, since it represents the element of stability in life, does not give, and must not be expected to give, direct spiritual experience, or any onward push towards novelty, freshness of discovery, and interpretation in the spiritual sphere. Its dangers and limitations will abide in a certain dislike of such freshness of discovery, the tendency to exalt the corporate and stable, and discount the mobile and individual. Its natural instinct will be for exclusivism, the club idea, conservatism, and coziness. It will, if left to itself, revel in the middle-aged atmosphere and exhibit the middle-aged point of view. We can now consider these points in greater detail, and first that of the religious group consciousness which a church should give its members. This is of a special kind. It is axiomatic that the group organization of some sort is a necessity of human life. History showed us that the tendency of all spiritual movements to embody themselves, if not in churches, at least in some group form. The paradox of each successive revolt from a narrow or decadent institutionalism forming a group in its turn, or perishing when its first fervor died. But this social impulse, these spontaneous group formations of master and disciples, valuable though they may be, do not fully exhibit all that is meant or done by a church. True, the church is, or should be, at each moment of its career, such a living spiritual society or household of faith. It is essentially a community of persons who have, or should have, a common sentiment, belief in and reverence for their God, and a common defined aim, the furtherance of the spiritual life under the special religious sanctions which they accept. But every sect, every religious order or guild, every class meeting might claim this much. Yet none of these can claim to be a church. A church is far more than this. In so far as it is truly alive, it is a real organism, as distinguished from a crowd or collection of persons with a common purpose. 
It exhibits on the religious plane the ruling characters of such organized life, that is to say, the development of tradition and complex habits, the differentiation of function, the docility to leadership, the conservation of values, or carrying forward of the past into the present. It is, like the state, embodied history, and as such lives with its own life, a life transcending and embracing that of the individual souls of which it is built. And here, in its combined social and historic character, lie the sources alike of its enormous importance for human life, and of its inevitable defects. Professor McDougall, in his discussion of national groups, 121, has laid down the conditions which are necessary to the development of such a true organic group life as is seen in a living church. These are, first, continuity of existence, involving the development of a body of traditions, customs, and practices, that is, for religion, a cultus. Next, an authoritative organization through which custom and belief can be transmitted, that is, a hierarchy, order of ministers, or its equivalent. Third, a conscious common interest, belief, or idea, creed. Last, the existence of antagonistic groups or conditions, developing loyalty or keenness. These characters, continuity, authority, common belief, and loyalty, which are shown, as he says, in their completeness in a patriot army, are, I think, no less marked features of a living spiritual society. Plain examples are the primitive Christian communities, the great religious orders in their flourishing time, the Society of Friends. They are on the whole more fully evident in the Catholic than in the Protestant type of church. But I think that we may look upon them in some form or another as essential to any institutional framework which shall really help the spiritual life in man. We find ourselves, then, committed to the picture of a church or spiritual institution which is, in its essence, liturgic, ecclesiastical, dogmatic, and militant, as best fulfilling the requirements of group psychology. Four decidedly indigestible morsels for the modern mind, yet group feeling demands common expression if it is to be lifted from a notion to fact. Discipline requires some authority and some devotion to it. Culture involves a tradition handed on, and these, we said, were the chief gifts which the institution had to give to its members. We may therefore keep them in mind as representing actual values and warning us that neither history nor psychology encourages belief that an amiable fluidity serves the highest purposes of life. Some common practice and custom, keeping the individual in line with the main tendencies of the group, providing rails on which the instinctive life can run, and machinery by which fruitful suggestion can be spread. Some real discipline and humbling submission to rule some traditional and theological standard, some missionary effort, and enthusiasm. For these four things we must find place in any incorporation of the spiritual life which is to have its full effect upon the souls of men. And, as a matter of fact, the periodical revolts against churches and ecclesiasticism are never against societies in which all these characteristics are still alive, but against those which retain and exaggerate formal tradition and authority, whilst they have lost the zest and identity of aim. A real church has, therefore, something to give to and something to demand from each of its members, and there is a genuine loss for man in being unchurched because it endures through a perpetual process of discarding and renewal, 
those members will share the richness and experience of a spiritual life far exceeding their own time span, a truth which is enshrined in the beautiful conception of the communion of saints. They enter a group consciousness which reinforces their own in the extent to which they surrender to it, which surrounds them with favorable suggestions and gives the precision of habit to their instinct for eternity. The special atmosphere, the hoarded beauty, the evocative yet often archaic symbolism of a Gothic cathedral, with its constant reminiscences of past civilizations and old levels of culture, its broken fragments and abandoned altars, its conservation of eternal truths, the intimate union in it of the sublime and homely, the successive and abiding aspects of reality, make it the most fitting of all images of the church, regarded as the spiritual institution of humanity. And the perhaps undue conservatism commonly associated with cathedral circles represents, too, the chief reproach which can be brought against churches, their tendency to preserve stability at the expense of novelty, to crystallize, to cling to habits and customs which no longer serve a useful end. In this, a church is like a home, where old bits of furniture have a way of hanging on, and old habits, sometimes absurd, endure. Yet both the home and the church can give something nowhere else obtainable by us, and represent values which it is perilous to ignore. When once the historical character of reality is fully grasped by us, we see that some such organization through which achieved values are conserved and carried forward, useful habits are learned and practiced, the direct intuitions of genius, the prophet's revelation of reality are interpreted and handed on, is essential to the spiritual continuity of the race, and that definite churchmanship of some sort, or its equivalent, must be a factor in the spiritual reconstruction of society. As other things being equal, a baby benefits enormously by being born within the social framework rather than in the illusory freedom of pure nature, so the growth of the soul is, or should be, helped and not hindered by the nurture it receives from the religious society in which it is born. Only indeed by attachment, open or virtual, through life or through literature, to some such group can the new soul link itself with history and so participate in the hoarded spiritual values of humanity. Thus, even a general survey of life inclines us to at least some appreciation of the principle laid down by Baron von Hugel in eternal life, namely, that souls who live in an historic spiritual life within great religious traditions and institutions attain to a rare volume and vividness of religious insight, conviction, and reality. 122. Seldom within reach of the contemplative, however ardent, who walks by himself. History has given one reason for this, psychology gives another. These souls, living, it is true, with intensity, their own life towards God, share and are bathed in the group consciousness of their church. As members of a family, distinct in temperament, share and are modified by the group consciousness of the home. The mental process of the individual is profoundly affected when he thus thinks and acts as a member of a group. Suggestibility is then enormously increased, and we know how much suggestion means to us. Moreover, suggestions emanating from the group always take priority of those of the outside world, for man is a gregarious animal, intensely sensitive to the mentality of the herd. 123. 
the mind of the church is therefore a real thing. The individual easily takes color from it and the tradition it embodies, tends to imitate his fellow members, and each such deed and thought is a step taken in the formation of habit, and leaves him other than he was before. To say this is not to discredit church membership as placing us at the mercy of emotional suggestion, reducing spontaneity to custom, and lessening the energy and responsibility of the individual soul towards God. On the contrary, right group suggestion reinforces, stimulates, does not stultify such individual action. If the prayerful attitude of my fellow worshippers helps me to pray better, surely it is a very mean kind of conceit on my part which would prompt me to despise their help and refuse to acknowledge creative spirit acting on me through other men? It is one of the most beautiful features of a real and living corporate religion that within it ordinary people at all levels help each other to be a little more supernatural than would have been alone. I do not now speak of individuals possessing special zeal and special aptitude, though, as the lives of the saints assure us, even the best of these fluctuate, and need social support at times. Anyhow, such persons of special spiritual aptitude, as life is now, are as rare as persons of special aptitude in other walks of life. But that which we seek for the life of today and of the future is such a planning of it as shall give all men their spiritual chance and it is abundantly clear upon all levels of life that men are chiefly formed and changed by the power of suggestion, sympathy, and imitation, and only reach full development when assembled in groups, giving full opportunity for the benevolent action of these forces. So, too, in the life of the Spirit, incorporation plays a part which nothing can replace. Goodness and devotion are more easily caught than taught. By association in groups, holy and strong souls both living and dead, make their full gift to society. Weak, undeveloped, and arrogant souls receive that of which they are in need. On this point we may agree with a great ecclesiastical scholar of our own day that the more the educated and intellectual partake with sympathy of heart in the ordinary devotions and pious practices of the poor, the higher they will rise in the religion of the Spirit. 124. Yet this family life of the ideal religious institution, with its reasonable and bracing discipline, its gift of shelter, its care for tradition, its habit formation and group consciousness, all this is given, as we may as well acknowledge, at the price which is exacted by all family life, namely mutual accommodation and sacrifice, place made for the childish, the dull, the slow, and the aged, a toning down of the somewhat imperious demands of the entirely efficient and clear-minded, a tolerance of imperfection. Thus, for these efficient and clear-minded members, there is always in the church, as in the family, a perpetual opportunity of humility, self-effacement, gentle acceptance, of exerting that love which must be joined to power, and a sound mind if the full life of the spirit is to be lived. In the realm of the supernatural, this is a solid gain, though not a gain which we are very quick to appreciate in our vigorous youth. Did we look upon the religious institution not as an end in itself, but simply as fulfilling the function of a home, giving shelter and nurture, opportunity of loyalty and mutual service on one hand, conserving stability and good custom on the other, then we should better appreciate its gifts to us, and be more merciful to its necessary defects. 
we should be tolerant to its inevitable conservatism, its tendency to encourage dependence and obedience, to distrust individual initiative. We should no longer expect it to provide, or specially to approve, novelty and freedom, to be in the van of life's forward thrust. For this we must go not to the institution, which is the vehicle of history, but to the adventurous forward-moving soul, which is the vehicle of progress, to the prophet, not to the priest. These two great figures, the keeper and the revealer, which are prominent in every historical religion, represent the two halves of the fully lived spiritual life. The progress of man depends both on conserving and on exploring, and any full incorporation of that life which will serve man's spiritual interests now must find place for both. Such an application of the institutional idea to present needs is required, in fact, to fulfill at least four primary conditions. 1. It must give a social life that shall develop group consciousness in respect of our eternal interests and responsibilities, using for this real discipline and the influences of liturgy and creed. 2. It must not so standardize and socialize this life as to leave no room for personal freedom in the realm of the spirit, for those experiences of men in their solitude which form the very heart of religion. 3. It must not be so ring-fenced, so exclusive, so wholly conditioned by the past, that the voice of the future, that is, of the prophet giving fresh expression to eternal truths, cannot clearly be heard in it, not only from within its own borders, but also from the outside. But, four, on the other hand, it must not be so contemptuous of the past and its priceless symbols that it breaks with tradition, and so loses that very element of stability, which is its special province to preserve. End of chapter 5, part A. Footnotes 119. William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience, page 31. 120. On this point compare von Hugel, Essays and Addresses on the Philosophy of Religion, pages 230. 121. W. McDougall, The Group Mind, chapter 3. 122. Von Hugel, Eternal Life, page 377. 123. C. F. Trotter, Instincts of the Herd in Peace and War. 124. Dom Cuthbert Butler in Hibbert Journal, 1906, page 502. End of chapter 5A.